Hello and welcome back to another episode of Armchair Analysts, the only podcast that thinks a team of 11 prime Kevin Grosskreutzers could win the Champions League this year. My name is Rupert Meadows and I've written and broadcasted about all things football on platforms such as TalkSport Radio and Give Me Sports. My co-host Cameron McDonald has spent the last three years working as an FA licensed intermediary here in the UK. But above all else, we're fans. Yeah, thanks for that, Rupert. I'm glad you brought up the Champions League, because uh, we're getting to the business end of the season with just a few games left to play in the league. So today we're going to be looking at European competition, um, because both the Champions League and the Europa League are entering the quarterfinal stage with five Premier League teams uh, that are in the running for European glory and whatever the reward for Europa League victory is. Um, we're already pretty familiar with those sides, though, so this gives us a pretty good chance to scope out the competition, which teams are still in the competition against the the English sides, um, and figure out what we can expect from them. Uh, and after that, I have a few questions I'd like to toss you away about sort of European competition and some of these teams. As always, timestamps are in the description. Uh, and just before we dive into our teams, a few interesting things happened this week. Yeah, they definitely did. Um, not least of which is the fact that uh, another old player that kind of was in the height of their, their peak while we were growing up, has turned his hand to managerial side of things. Jabby Alonso is going to become the Borussia Mönchengladbach manager. And it's always fun because you never know if they're going to be a Steven Gerrard at Rangers or a Gary Neville at Valencia. Yeah, very true. And it is funny looking at all these players. It definitely makes you feel old <laughs> watching all these players that I we remember being like, some of them you're even like, oh yeah, I remember when he was sort of coming through and now they're a manager and you're like, oh God. Um, but I had two thoughts when I saw this, that Xabi Alonso was going to become a manager. My first one was that Pep must be absolutely shaking in his boots just at the thought of a manager who you know is, is quote-unquote well-dressed, which by the UK media standards is just someone who puts on a scarf. <laughs> <laughs> so that's so just going to be like, oh God, oh God, I'm no longer going to be like the, the fashion-forward manager. Um, and then the second one was, is there some sort of, because I, I sort of sat down and thought this, is there some sort of predisposition for central midfielders to become managers? Because... If you think about the managers that we have at the moment, certainly the ones that were players in our day, the only one I can think of off the top of my head that isn't a midfielder is Ole. But then the central midfielders, you've got Guardiola, of course, was a midfielder, Arteta, Lampard, Gerrard, Pirlo, and now Alonso. Most of the managers that were players in the last decade are central mids. Am I wrong there? Am I missing anyone out? Uh, I mean, the, off the top of my head, I think of um, I think Roberto Mancini was a striker. Um, Steve Bruce was a centre-back. Um You've got Ronald Koeman at Barcelona, but yeah. yeah but those, I mean, those are all a different generation. I'm talking about the, the manager of today, and does that maybe hint towards how possession and midfield dominance has become more important? Because the new generation of manager is like 90% central mids. I Weirdly, I would counter that just by saying, I feel like, and this might be you know, giving the midfielders a little bit too much of an ego, a little bit too much praise, but I do feel like the centre of the pitch is where you have to spend the most brain time. Um, you know, mm. I think if you're like a fullback or a centre back, you have a really clearly defined role. Whereas midfield is all about like balancing defence and attack. It's all about being creative, penetrative. You're always actively thinking. So, and I guess strikers are too. But I would say maybe you do get a couple of of striker managers. But yeah, I, I think it is a weird coincidence. Not coincidence. It seems to have a no, found. I, 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 I agree with you. I think it makes sense if you're in the heart of the team, you do have to, you know, strikers don't often think that much about defending. And in some systems, they have to drop back. But for the most part, strikers think about scoring. And for the most part, defenders think about defending. Whereas midfielders, you're right, do have to have a little bit of everything in their head. And so to me, anyway, it does make sense. It tracks that central midfielders would be big into the managerial field. Well, it's interesting because I feel like when you think of it a little deeper and you think, um, you know, in terms of 
Like, is is it because they are able to tell their midfielders what they want more clearly because they've played in those positions? And, you know, things like centre-backs have have more of a role that coaches can teach and strikers mm-hmm. have a role that coaches can teach. And really, for them, it's more about learning the system, whereas midfielders you need to really, like, hone them. Yeah. No, I, I think there definitely is something there, but it was just something that I sat down and thought about. And I was like, huh, I wonder, because it's just another manager who was a player in our day, central midfielder. Pretty much everyone is from, from that era. So, yeah, kind of an interesting one. Definitely interested to see, as you said, which end of the managerial spectrum Xabi Alonso uh, falls on. Uh, and, yeah, good luck to him. I mean, he's just got such a touch of class about him. You do just imagine that he's going to be quite good. Like, I kind of feel like he's who Mikel Arteta wishes he was. <laughs> yeah, I think that's probably true. They, oh, of course, they were, you know, both grew up in San Sebastian, their best mates. So maybe they'll end up being, you know, well, exactly, opposition yeah. managers in some league or another. You never know. I mean, I, for one, welcome uh, Javi Alonso in the Prem at some point in the future, bearing in mind yeah, if he does well at, uh, in the Bundesliga. Yeah, or, or could be the other way around. Could be Mikel Arteta in the Bundesliga. Well, like, or maybe maybe just do like a little um, swap deal. That'd be fun with me too. I think Arsenal fans would probably be okay with it as well. Um, <laughs> interesting though, you talk about, um, I know what you mean, it does make you feel a bit ageing. I find it hits me the hardest when I think of like players that you, you, like, have an indeterminate age and you look them up and you're like, oh God. So Danny Welbeck's 30. I didn't know that until the other day. Yeah, yeah. So, some of the players that seem way older, you're just like, oh God. And, and also just like the large amount of players that are like significantly younger than us now as well. Oh yeah, that, that hurts, that hurts. But like, it's not, it's not, I, I know Danny Welbeck's been around for like 10 years at least, but it's still weird just to see that big, you know, 3-0. Like, I don't know how old Theo Walker is at this point, but he's... I think he's 32, I think. He's got to be again, is crazy. ancient. Um, I mean, is Aaron Lennon still alive? I don't even... <laughs> Who knows? Um, but I'm, but you've brought up a lot of interesting uh, interesting English players there, which puts us quite nicely into our next topic before we jump into the Champions League, and that is the latest England squad um, and how that's been sort of sorted out. There have been a lot of interesting omissions and changes, some due to injury, some due to form, um, and I think, as always with Gareth Southgate squads, it's such a one step forward, two steps back type of scenario. Because you can look at it and, you know, Ollie Watkins has got his first call-up, which I think is really, really good. He's never been involved with England at the youth level. So I think it shows a real, not leap of faith because he has had a good season, but it's good to see, you know, Gareth looking outside the people who've been through the England system for for options. Because I think Ollie Watkins has earned that. Um, And also you've had Trent Alexander-Arnold dropped for poor performances, despite the fact that he was last season, arguably, and, you know, potentially still could whip it out the best right back in the world. so I think it's, you know, a little bit cutthroat, but definitely shows that he's not messing around the fact that he's willing to drop Alexander-Arnold. That's the step forward. The two steps back is that not everyone gets the same treatment. Eric Dyer keeps on hanging in there. I know he's Ted Croker's grandson, and that's like a big family in the FA, but that, like, whose nudes does he have? He always plays for Spurs, he <laughs> always plays for England, and he just he's just so bad. He just, he seems to, he must be doing something right. The only... The thing that I always think of in, in those kind of circumstances, he must just be big in the dressing room. He must have a real presence in that side because you do just look at him and you think, you're not good enough. Like, there's no two ways about it. You're just not very good at football. And there's just so many better options for England. Like, I was looking at that squad and there are so many players like 
Lewis Dunk is one who everyone always clamors for. James Tarkovsky is another one that I think has really earned at least a try. The one that I think would be really interesting is Esri Concer, who's had a really, really good season for Villa. Also because I slightly think that sometimes if you can take a club partnership and bring that to an international level, it can work out really well. Obviously, at the moment, the first choice centre-back partnership will probably be Harry Maguire and John Stones. But I think, you know, A... Harry Maguire hasn't been amazing this season, and John Stones has, but John Stones has been amazing alongside Ruben Diaz. Sometimes you don't really know how that's going to work out if you rip apart those partnerships and try it. I mean, look at England when they had Rio Ferdinand and John Terry, both independently, you know, two of the best centre-backs to ever play the game, didn't really find that form together. And so I think, you know, there is a case to be made that if you took Esri Concer and Tyrone Mings, who have been fantastic this season for Villa, having that partnership roll into the England international side could be more effective than having, you know, Maguire and Stones. Yeah, definitely, definitely agree with that. I think um, also Cons has done enough to to merit a call up. I think again, it's just tough because there are a lot of good players shining through at the moment. For example, it's great that Ollie Watkins is in. It's a shame that he's in and Bamford's out. Obviously, mm-hmm. I'm not saying that Bamford should be in instead of Watkins, but you you want all of these players who are coming through and having breakout seasons to get their opportunities. And personally, like, yeah, I think I saw, um, I don't know if it was Rio Ferdinand or something like that, slamming the fact that Connor Cody and Eric Dyer were both in the side, despite the fact that they hadn't had good seasons, really. Um, and, yeah, Konza is someone that I would really like to see partnering Tyron Mings at the base of, of England's defence. I think that would be really interesting. Um, it's a shame as well, just though, I don't know, that I feel like it's been an observation that Gareth Southgate is always criticised, despite the fact that he did really well in um, the 2018 World Cup, and despite the fact that I think that this England side and England as a national team are moving in a really positive direction. Every little thing that he does is criticised, things like Trent Alexander-Arnold being being um, left out, which I actually think is a great thing. Personally, I think he shouldn't be in there. He's not been good enough this year. I think it's a ballsy play. I, I'd also agree that I think it's a good sign. It sends a message to the... Well, this is the thing. In theory, it sends a message to the squad saying, you know, no one's put, no one's immune. If you have a bad season, you can get left out. But then, as you say, you know, Eric Dyer and Connor Cody. Connor Cody, I, I have less of an issue with because, again, apparently he's a really, really big figure in the dressing room and he's he's not had a lot of time with England to show himself up. But Eric Dyer, I'm not trying to pile in on the guy, but he is, like, consistently one of the worst players on the pitch every any time I watch a game that he's in. He, you know, there are just some players that fill you with confidence. Eric Dyer is not that player. To be fair, I actually don't think Harry Maguire is re- either, really. I don't think John Stones always is either, really. I mean, I'm excited to see this new look John Stones that is a great defender, but he's always just been prone to a little bit of a slip-up. Um, people like, I trust Carl Walker. I think I trust Ben Chilwell. I think I trust Luke Shaw, despite the fact that he's been up and down it feels like he's up for good now I trust someone like I don't know even someone like Jordan Henderson um I, I would say I trust and there are a lot of players that you just think like you you, you could wobble at any point yeah those those players especially your your you know Carl Walkers or your Jordan Hansons they might not win you games but they're not going to let you down either whereas a player like a Harry Maguire and Eric Dyer very much have the potential to lose you games on their own they really are um, but yeah, I mean, who else is great? Sam Johnson. I'm a big fan of his inclusion. He's had a amazing season so far for West Brom. Um, Nick Pope, obviously really good. I mean, he could well be the starting keeper for, you know, competitions going forwards. I think he's, he's probably earned that spot for, um, on performances for the last season or two alone. 
Uh, it's great to see Jude Bellingham in there, who is um, a player that I guess people know a little bit less about just because he, he plies his trade in the Bundesliga for Borussia Dortmund, but a very, very promising young player. I mean, the midfield is stacked with young players. Jesse Lingard's fun to see him back in. I, for one, I'm here for this resurgence. And um, Yeah, no, he's, he's earned it, to be fair to him. Yeah, I, I mean, it's weird because I always get really excited about these England games, but we're playing like San Marino and Albania and realistically like it's not going to be you know proper challenges to them they get to play Poland but there's not going to be any Robert Lewandowski because Bayern Munich have blocked him from from going on international duty so it's yeah I'm excited for it um and yeah well fingers crossed Fingers crossed indeed. Uh, next, before the Champions League uh, analysis, we'll be having guessing game, and I've got one for you this week, Rupert. Do you now? Yeah, so the first one is a pretty big hint, I think. If you know this, it's one of those, if you know it off the top of your head, you'll you'll know it. Yeah. Um, but it, but it might le- put you in the right direction. And that's that this player has the third most official appearances of all time, and the most official appearances of all time for an outfield player. So this is across all competitive football. Ever? Mm-hmm. Like, not just English Premier League, we're talking... No, 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 across all football, all competitions, this player has the third most official appearances of all time, and the most official appearances for an outfield player. Okay. Um, He was nicknamed the Bullet Man for the tremendous power with which he was known to strike the ball. And he played with the likes of Jose Antonio Reyes, Clarence Seydorf, Javier Zanetti, and Ronaldinho. I mean, it's not a bad, uh, it's not a bad set of players, is it? No, good career, good career, good career indeed. Yeah, okay, the Bullet Man for how hard he can hit a ball. The Bullet Man. It it wasn't in that language, but if I give you the the language in which he was named the Bullet Man, it might give it away. Uh, okay, all right, all right, all right. I hear you. Um, well, let's carry on, and we will come back to that later on in the episode give me a little bit of time to think about it which I never really do <laughs> we, always just, we always just go on and talk about other things but um, yeah okay I'll, I'll sit with that one so starting off a look at the Champions League side I think the best place to start is probably with the current champions of Europe um, and that's Bayern Munich and they're the team that many consider to be the strongest in the tournament left um, I think you know, that's obviously a very good reason. I think at the moment it's sort of a three-way... Everyone thinks it's one one of three of Bayern Munich, PSG or Man City. Uh, obviously, they're the most recent champions. They haven't seemed to slow down after winning the Champions League. And I think you could argue it's only improved over the last 12 months. Um, I think, you know, Bayern Munich are a side that they've been so good for so long. And unlike we're seeing with like Real Madrid, for example, or Barcelona or even Juventus, they've done exceptionally well to just transplant new talent in. They've got all these really exciting young players like Joshua Kimmich, who replaced Philip Lahm, or Serge Gnabry, who replaced Iron Robin, for example, and it's just been a seamless transition. Yeah, couldn't agree more. I mean, the, uh, they just seem to do really well in getting good deals. Like, picking up Leroy Sané, I think, is a great signing. Um, they've got, yeah, just Alphonse Davies as well. Who's, who's replaced Alaba when Alaba was out, and now Alaba plays centre-back because Davies is so good. Um, so, yeah, Bayern, I think, have got to be the favourites just because they won it last year. They haven't wrapped up the Bundesliga yet. They're four points ahead, um, but they've got the, the squad depth to 
be able to challenge on both fronts. And they just have that consistency that, that all clubs like aspire towards. Um, they just you know they just feel really big in your mind. Do you know what I mean by that? Yeah, no, and I, and I think that is part of the reason why they're able to just have such a good squad turnover because they just consistently attract the best players, normally at the expense of their club rivals. <laughs> so you know they're gonna have they're gonna have another player, Makano, coming in this summer, and they've got all these players that I, I think you could argue haven't even hit their prime yet. Loads of these players are like twenty five or under, so it's it's crazy to think that this Bayern Munich, as good as they are, might not even be in their final form yet. Um, of course, they have got all these young players coming through and doing really well. They've also got a couple of old heads, which I think is always, we've talked about this before, but it's really, really good to have that mixture between young players and older players. And obviously, you've got Thomas Muller, who's 31 at the moment, and Lewandowski, who, despite being 32, which is traditionally sort of an age where people start to drop off, is having his best season yet. Um He's got 35 goals in the league at the moment, and he's only played 25 games. He's just five away from equaling the all-time Bundesliga goal record by Gerd Müller um, with 40. So just to put that in context with everyone else in Europe, Lewandowski is on 35. The next highest scorers in Europe's top five leagues are Lionel Messi and Cristiano Ronaldo, so he's outscoring them both, and they're both on 23, so he's outscoring them both by a lot. Yeah, it's 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 absolutely wild, the kind of form that he's been in, and he scored, um, I think he scored the quickest perfect hat-trick ever last week or the week before um, and he's just in an absolutely blistering form and you know I feel like um, it's it's nice because you do get to see just different players peaking at different times obviously like Wayne Rooney's a famous example of someone who peaked very early on um, physically and someone like Didier Drogba was really at his best in his early 30s and I think Robert Lewandowski as well is someone who just relies on his intelligence so much with, along with his physical attributes um, that he is just aging like a fine wine. Yeah, and I think we're seeing more and more of that. I mean, Zlatan Ibrahimovic got a goal on the, at the weekend. He's now got 15 goals in 15 games this season. He's 39 years old. So, you know, the script is being flipped a little bit. But I think it's interesting you mentioned how Bayern haven't got the league quite wrapped up yet. And I do think that is true. They do still have to keep one eye on the league. I do also think you could make the case that there's the biggest gap between Bayern and the other contenders in the league in, in, in all of the European leagues I mean one example was at the game that you mentioned there where Lewandowski scored a perfect hat-trick very quickly um they went down to 10 men in 12 minutes in against Stuttgart who are in eighth place they're not a bad side but they went a man down in the 12th minute entered the half 4-0 up now that's that's a little bit of an imbalance if you ask me yeah I mean that doesn't happen in the Prem like if City go down to 10 men you you would maybe think that they can get a result but they wouldn't be 4-0 up at half time no, they absolutely would not. Um, it almost feels think, like um, it's the kind of time where like they're challenged. It's like, oh, okay, guess we've got to try and win this one and put up per hundred percent in, and they just slap. Yeah, po- poking the bear a little bit, and they've just woken up and absolutely mauled Stuttgart for having the temerity to be tackled. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I think Bayern are a really interesting team, though, because I think we did, we talked about this definitely last season when we were at a similar stage of the competition, and we talked about why Bayern worked so well and what Bayern did. And I think Bayern are impressive because they do something that no other team in Europe can do, and that's sort of the total football-style flexibility of their midfield and defence. You mentioned there that David Alaba has been playing centre-back recently, but both him and Joshua Kimmich are, you know, they're world-class fullbacks. You could, I think you could argue they're the best left-back and right-back in the world on their day. But as a, as a pair, yeah, I would I would agree with that. 
but they've been playing as central midfielders for a good part of this season. Alaba also plays as a centre-back. They've also got all these players in their defence, from Benjamin Pavard to Nicolas Sewell to Lucas Hernandez, who can all play as a centre-back or as a full-back or as a midfielder. So they have this really, really interesting system, and I won't go into it too much now because we've covered it before, but it's just this really interesting system where any time a player moves or is out of position or sort of advances up the pitch or drops back, someone else can sort of just fill in that role. I mean, we see this all the time with Alfonso Davis, who his biggest asset is just blistering pace. He will sprint up the pitch at a million miles per hour and either Alaba shifts left to cover it or Lucas Hernandez drops back a little bit. And it just makes them really difficult to find any holes in because any time that their formation changes, someone's filling in any deficiencies. And it also means their shape is really, really malleable and they can tailor how they form against every opposition. So you look at their team sheet and go oh they're starting three left backs today but actually they've you know they've played it in so way. so I think that's that's really impressive I think you know we talk about all the time players like James Milner who are treasured by managers for being really versatile and being Swiss army knives and Bayern basically have 11 James Milners turned up to 11. There you go I mean was my Kevin Grosskreutz thing at the beginning a coincidence maybe maybe not. <laughs> well, exactly. Players like that, everyone knows and everyone loves, but by enough, like, several of them, and they also do it, not not anything against James Milner or Kevin Grosskreutz, but David Alaba does what they do at an even higher standard. Yeah, it, it makes them terrifying, um, and they've just got such complete games. Like, David Alaba, for example, uh, I don't want to go on and on about him, but he can take free kicks, he can, he's got a great left foot on him, score goals, um, he's, he's really good at passing... He holds onto the ball well. Like he just has it all. He's the complete package. And they have a lot of players like that. And not only does it mean that they can play a flexible system, but it also means they can challenge on multiple fronts because even if they have an injury crisis like Liverpool, it's like, okay, well, we actually have like seven, eight players on the books that can be world-class centre-backs if they need to be. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think um, the one thing that... I would say that while they do have the, the flexibility to play total football... I do think that they maybe are a little too reliant on their system, which is, you know, to play a high line. And I think they often will feel confident in their strength and not feel the need to try and adapt their system to the competition. And I feel like that is maybe their only weakness. Yeah, I think definitely overconfidence can sometimes, it can can hit both ways, can't it? And I think they are flexible but they're used to one certain way of doing things and sometimes you can make the changes too late for it to have an impact I think that's happened quite a few times this season they've actually had uh, a much leakier defense than usual and obviously you know I think due to COVID everyone's had a leaky defense than usual the first three months of the season every single game we had like eight goals in it but they've already conceded more league goals this season than they had in each of their past nine seasons and they had some quite notable results like conceding three goals to second bottom Armenia Bielefeld when they drew 3-3 and turned around so I think there are weaknesses there when I was thinking about strengths and weaknesses it was kind of difficult to look at Bayern's weaknesses because I think they are limited but they are there and for a top top team they will be able to maybe find a way to expose them Um, I do think lastly the other interesting thing about Bayern in this tie because they haven't drawn an English team and because of Germany's strict rules they actually will be able to play one of the legs at the Allianz Arena and Bayern is still unbeaten at home this season so I think that potentially has made a big difference relative to you know other than them drawing like a City or a Liverpool or a Chelsea yeah, definitely, it could well do. Um, and you know, let's let's talk about um, their opponents that they had in the Champions League final last year. Paris Saint Germain again, as you said, probably one of the the top three title contenders. Yeah, I was slightly disappointed when this game got drawn as a course final game because I was kind of hoping that it was going to be the final again. I think last year's final was 
it was good, but it wasn't as great as I thought it could be. I felt like it was one of those games that we see a lot of the time in the Premier League between big sides where both teams were sort of really interested in sort of feeling each other out. And also, of course, Man United had an amazing game, so PSG just didn't have any luck on the day. But I, I kind of wanted to see these two play each other in a final where they were sort of less respectful of each other or had, had come to terms more with each other. I think we'll still see that in this quarterfinal, but it just feels like a bit of a shame that the way the bracket's fallen, and we'll get into this later, it feels like we might not see the best two teams in the final. Um, well, maybe not, think, but we will see two 90 minutes of, it, of them playing. That's that's very true, and I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Um, I think it's interesting that PSG have a very precarious position at the top of Ligue 1, despite the fact that everyone's always calling Ligue 1, the, you know, La Ligue de Fermiers. Um, you know, they're only top of the league on goal difference, ahead of Lille, and Lyon and Monaco are just three or four points behind them, respectively. Just four days before they play this game, the first leg away at the Allianz Arena, they're hosting second place Lille at the Parc de Prince. So if they, they've got these two really, really important games in a four-day period, it's going to be really difficult to balance. It's actually interesting to note that on the same day, so both of these teams have this, because on the same day that PSG play Lille, Bayern will be, Bayern will be um, going away to RB Leipzig. Although the difference is, if they lose that game, they won't lose top spot, whereas PSG will. Yeah, true. I mean... um. Again, PSG, I would say they don't have quite the strength and depth that, that Bayern have. So they will be a little bit more conflicted in terms of who starts, who maybe gets 70 minutes and gets rested for the final 20 kind of thing. Um, but yeah, it's it's pretty close at the top of um, Liga. Often PSG run away with it and that's not the case this year. Um, Lille is on the same amount of points as them. Lyon are just three points behind. Monaco are just four points behind them. So mm. yeah, it's... Um, the top four they can't, are really they can't tight. completely focus on this. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's um that's actually a trend that I, I want to discuss a little bit more later on when we when we come to talk about it, because I am interested just to see it feels like a special year this year in, in the Champions League. Um but I'll talk about that later. Um Paris Saint Germain, I think, can be anyone on the day. That's yeah, I, that's what I, they I bring agree. to the table, I think. Yeah, I, I would agree. And I think, especially in this game, they have a real point to prove. I think they got really frustrated in last year's final. And I think Kylian Mbappe showed that despite the fact that he's a really, really good player and he's going to be potentially one of the best to ever play the game, he showed in that final to a lot of people that he still had a bit of a way to go before he was at the level of someone like Lewandowski. He squandered a few big chances. Obviously, Noy had a really good performance, but he, he wasn't able to sort of win the game for them which is you know maybe a suggestion that he's not fully developed yet and at 22 who can blame him I think similarly with Neymar Neymar had a very similar performance and showed why he is you know slightly fallen short of the Ronaldo Messi level over the course of his career and he's been struggling with injury all season um, but will be back for this tie I think that Bayern also you know in tandem to the fact they have this less sturdy defense than usual It'll be interesting to see now if they can find a way to take advantage of Bayern's slightly less sturdy defence and make their chances count. I think that'll be helped by the fact that they've got a few new players in that attacking lineup that'll come in. Obviously, they had Icardi last season, um, but he was an unused substitute in the final. They've also brought in Moise Keane on loan, who I think is their second top scorer in the uh, in all competitions, actually. Their yeah, second he's top scorer. been having a great season, yeah. He's been having a great season. Obviously, they've also got from... Uh, <laughs> they, actually, sorry, they, they've lost out on the uh, the best attacking player they had, perhaps, in Eric Maxim Chupamoting, who has gone to Bayern, incidentally, <laughs> because he has the best agent in the world. It is so weird, isn't it, when you see players like Moise Keane, who just struggled at Everton a little bit, or Chupamoting, who I last saw at Stoke. 
Um, yeah, she, exactly. She, Bang average at Stoke, did really well for PSG last season, and now he's doing it for Bayern, bizarrely. But um, no, I think I think PSG could win this game. I think the fact that it's over two legs is actually more beneficial to them. I think also Kylian Mbappe, we've seen clearly, has grown even from where he was last year. His hatch against Barcelona was evidence to that. And I think PSG win or lose this tie based on star quality. Because I think Bayern Munich, for all that they're great and for all that someone like Lewandowski is an absolutely world-class player and, and should have won the Ballon d'Or last season, I don't think that they rely on stars, if, if that makes sense. Like Lewandowski scores all the goals, but they very much rely on a system. And that system just happens to have Lewandowski as the guy who is his only job is to score goals, much like we talked about Dominic Calvert-Lewin in the early season with Everton. And that's great. That's a system that works. But I, I don't know if you agree with me. I don't think that Bayern Munich are a system that relies on individual star quality, whereas PSG definitely can. And I think this game will be won or lost based on whether Mbappe turns up and is absolutely at the top of this game and whether, whether or not Neymar turns up and is absolutely at the top of this game. Whereas I think, conversely, if Bayern turn up and Lewandowski isn't, on his best day, they could still edge it like they did in the Champions League final. Yeah, I know what you mean. I think um, the sum of their parts is greater than than PSG's, even if PSG mm-hmm. have one or two players who are maybe a cut above you know, the, the rest of the buying side, apart from someone like Lewandowski, who's just playing out of his skin at the moment. Um, I actually weirdly disagree with you. I feel like, just generally, it seems to me that when you have that balance of like a team that's slightly better and a team that might have to nick it on, on the strength of their individual talent, that they're more likely to win it if it's a one-off game versus over two legs where there's just more opportunity for, I guess, like less luck to play out and more like the quality to shine through. Yeah, well, so, sort of, except for like, I would say broadly that's true in like cup, Cup final and like FA Cup stuff, but because there's away goals and things like it, like this, like how they played against Barcelona, if Kylian Mbappe just scores a hat trick in the first leg, it it makes the second leg not a ride for PSG, but they don't they, they can take it a lot more easily and, and not be as stressed out if they've got three goals at the Allianz Arena. That's fair, but again, you like, know, if he uh, scores a hat trick <laughs> in the first leg, he doesn't also necessarily need scoring in the second leg. That is, uh, as they say, easier said than done. But I take your point. That is <laughs> a sure. uh, is a fair point. Um, yeah, I mean, I definitely, I actually kind of like the fact that they're not meeting in the final just because I like that it's not the same final every year. I want it to be different. And I know that obviously the like the draw affects that. But it's nice that, you know, it's not going to be, well, it's these same two teams again. Um, so, yeah, I, I welcome it. Yeah, and I think well, you're definitely right. We get two games between them instead of one. I think it'll be very interesting. I think it'll be interesting to see how each team has changed. A lot of young players growing into you know better form for themselves. Lewandowski and Neymar, some of the older players, definitely looking to prove a point as well. Looking forward to it. Probably the match of the or the or the tie of the round that I think everyone's most excited about. But before we move into our next team, shall we have a bit of useless trivia? Yes, let's. Um, yeah, I came across uh, an interesting little factoid for you this week, um, which was, uh, you know, just in light of um, West Ham's very impressive season. I was surprised to note, just because they've always been in and around, I would say, kind of top 10, top 8, quite for quite a few years in the last 10. Um, mm-hmm. 2015-16 was the first time West Ham had ever record had recorded a positive goal difference in a top flight season since 1985. Huh. That's that's kind of surprising, but also at the same time, I feel like West Ham in recent Premier League years has kind of been characterised by 
a really inconsistent defence, and I feel like they'll lose like a game 4-0 at least once a season. They do have that in them. Um, I mean, but so does everyone at the Prem at the moment, I think. Uh, at the moment, yeah, but I think like in all the time that I remember West Ham being in the Premier League, they've always had like a little ability to just drop mad clangers out of nowhere. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, but surprising nonetheless. Yeah, for sure. Um, I have gone for a, a fact about steady pros, a fact about substitutes. We talked about a minute ago how we love our Swiss Army Knife players and how they're very highly valued. Uh, and so mine is about the substitution of some of these players. Uh, and last Monday, Liverpool had a pretty unremarkable game where they beat Wolves 1-0. Um, you know, pretty unspectacular aside from the fact that it was Yotta who scored and that James Milner came off the bench on the 67th minute. Why is that an interesting thing? Well, he's equal to the Premier League record for the most times subbed on the pitch at 158 times. Tying, of course... Ryan Giggs? Uh, no, no, Ryan Giggs is in the top 10, though. He is tying, of course, the most legendary super sub of, of all time in the Premier League, Peter Crouch. Hey, there you go. So James Milner, and, and he's probably going to break it. He's probably going to keep subbing on. It'll be interesting to see. You know, I, I feel like... <laughs> the world is kind of healing if Gareth Barry has the most Premier League appearance and James Milner has the most sub appearances. Those two at the top is just like, it's a nice... If I ever have like a panic attack, I'm just going to look at that list. Ah, perfectly balanced, as all things should be. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, exactly. Um, that is reassuring. Um, yeah, I, for one, um, will be heartbroken when uh, James Milner decides to end his career because he is just such a mainstay, isn't he? He is just a mainstay, indeed. Um, looking at our next team, we have Real Madrid, who are the other team that uh, are in a quarterfinal that sees two recent finalists face each other again. Obviously, PSG versus Bayern was the final last year, but Real Madrid played Liverpool back in the 2018 final, and these two meet again. Um, the difference only seems to be that where PSG and Bayern seems to be something that everyone's like, oh, these are the two best teams in Europe at the peak of their powers... A lot of people are looking at this game sort of like two old granddads fighting over the last pill bottle, like trying to, you know, two people who have passed their powers. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting because I feel like you've got a bit of both on each side. I mean, on the one hand, I'm really looking forward to seeing Mo Salah take on his, his arch nemesis, Sergio Ramos, yet again. Um, mm. But on the other hand, yeah, I think absolutely both of these teams will be looking to focus on domestic um, success because realistically Liverpool's best chance of being in Europe in the Champions League next season is by finishing in the top floor four. I don't think they're in a position to win the Champions League this year. Um, so and and Real Madrid as well will want to you know as always beat Barcelona, win the um, La Liga and and just kind of re-cement their domestic dominance, which I think is quite important to them in terms of their like identity as a club. Uh, so yeah, it's it's definitely going to be a weird one. I think um, this kind of comes into what I was talking about, where it just feels like a lot of sides that you wouldn't expect to be looking elsewhere will be focused on on their home form. Um, you know, you can look at Liverpool, for example, um, Real Madrid, PSG again a little bit. Um, you know, Dortmund will be looking to challenge. I think that weirdly, it's it's kind of stacked in a strange way, the Champions League this year, because on one side, you've got all of almost all of the, the contenders to win it, which is City, Bayern, PSG, and to an extent Dortmund, because I do think they can beat anyone on, on the day. Um, mm. And on the other side, you've got four teams that are realistically all kind of dark horse underdogs, which is Chelsea and Porto. 
I think they'll both want to do well, but realistically, again, Chelsea will be focused on the top four and they'll want to get as far as they can in, in Europe, but finishing in that top four will be the priority. Porto, who surely have to be the underdogs in any any competition, any fight they're in from now on. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, you've got these these two sides that are just not at their best in, in Madrid and Liverpool. And whoever wins of these four to go into the final is definitely going to be the underdog, I think, guaranteed. Yeah, I think both of those teams, maybe the way to phrase it, won't be not looking at this as a potential. I, I think, you know, when you get to this point, you've got to think maybe there's a small chance we can win it. But I think every team on the right side of the bracket is thinking, mm, if we get to the final, yeah, we could pull out an upset. We could also get absolutely spanked 8-0. <laughs> so. I mean, that's that's like the fear anytime you play Bayern, I think. Yeah, um, yeah or, pretty or much. Or PSG to that, to that fact, or even City. So, yeah, it's... Absolutely in the running. And I think none of these sides realistically are thinking that they have a really, really good shot at it. I mean, Porto as well are, are not winning their domestic league. They're coming second by 10 points. So mm. again, they're, you know, they're going to want to be challenging sporting for the title. Um, yeah, it may be one of those. If they get knocked out, they'll be like, you know what, that's not the end of the world. We can turn our focus fully to the league now. Yeah, no, I think the league thing is definitely a very good point. Real are currently third in La Liga. And they've just... The, what's interesting about this tie to me is that Real Madrid and Liverpool's like weaknesses line up quite nicely. Real Madrid's biggest problem this season has been an inability to score enough goals. Karim Benzema has had a really good season. He's got 17 goals in the league. But their next best scorer is Casemiro, who's a defensive midfielder with five. And then after that, it's Modric with three. And I think... So all these players with three or two... No replacement for Ronaldo, who's obviously been a massive miss for them. Eden Hazard hasn't really been the signing they hoped they would get when they spent all that money on him. Injuries have been a part of it, but even when he's been fit, he hasn't made the right impact. Vinicius Jr. and Rodrigo are both 20-year-olds that look like 20-year-olds. I was reading a very interesting um, Real Madrid fan forum uh, earlier this week, and they were talking about how, you know, at a lot of other clubs, you can look at players and go, oh, they've got a lot of potential. Real Madrid isn't a club that talks about players with potential. It w- only wants to start players that have already filled that potential. And maybe yeah, exactly. can keep growing. But but the, the Real Madrid aren't interested in having players who are like, oh, they'll be there someday in the first 11. They only want you know players who are already there. And this definitely isn't these two players. They've got five goals in all competitions between them. Um, I think, you know... They've got loads and loads of young players like this that aren't quite there yet. On the other end of the spectrum, they have got that pivot of Tony Cruz and Luka Modric, which was the foundation uh, upon which they won those three Champions Leagues back-to-back. Really, really solid partnership. They're both very, very old now. They're 32 and 35, respectively. And that's not to say that Modric hasn't had a really good season. He's been one of Real's few good players this year. But over the course of two legs and the busiest part of the season, against, in theory anyway, Jurgen Klopp's really high-pressing side, that could really take a toll on our granddad. Um, what I do think is interesting is that, you know, Real, where their problem has been scoring goals, Liverpool's problem this season has been keeping clean sheets. So are those two things going to cancel each other out? Is someone like Vinicius Jr. going to really relish the chance to have a run at Nat Phillips? Or is it the other way around? And is Nat Phillips going to be like, great, I'll, I can say that I've kept a clean sheet against Real Madrid because they're starting the second string, essentially. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it really could go either way. And and just so, yeah, Real Madrid are in a weird, weird spot at the moment because... I think um, when you talk about their, their their general behavior in terms of like buying one or two Galacticos every year just to keep the squad rejuvenated, refreshed, not too old, they've they've lost that because it seems like they have been moving towards trying to buy young players and nurture them, and that's just not their model normally. So players like Luka Jovic, who 
is a really exciting player, had a great season, um, and, and they signed him, and it just hasn't worked out. Martin Odegaard is on loan at the moment. S- someone like Isco, who I think is a world-class midfielder, but he's only started five games this season. Um, Sergio Ramos, again, is another player who hasn't been replaced yet. He's 34 now. Um, so they, yeah, they, they've, they've lost their rhythm as a club because they have deviated from their normal pattern of, as you say, buying well-established players for it, for a lot of money, but also you know, f- you know they make back that money because they're world class players. Um, it has been really sad to see what's been happening with Eden Hazard. I've seen suggestions that you know he just got injured too many times in the Premier League and was just like mm. a battered man by the time he got to to Real Madrid and and now his ankles are just just like putty. Yeah, I think so. Well, I think, you know, the when the Eden Hazard purchase happened in the first place, there was a part of me that was like, hmm, that's a lot of money for a guy who had a really, really, really good last season at Chelsea, but did also have the propensity to just switch off, like, the season when Chelsea finished 10th. Not to say he's not an amazing player, but if that's their Ronaldo replacement, and it's going to be difficult to replace Ronaldo, whoever you go for, but I, at the time I was like, hmm... Putting all your eggs in that basket is an interesting one. I always saw him as like, when he joined Real Madrid, in my head, he was kind of like a Gareth Bale level addition, but it seemed like Real Madrid saw him as like a like-for-like Ronaldo replacement. And at the time, I was like, hmm. Exactly. I mean, someone like Ronaldo that has that level of consistency is so, so rare. And you have to have such an elite mentality. And as much as I love Eden Hazard as a player, he is a joker. He's like, he's not someone that trains at 120% every single day of his life you're never going to see him like get back from a Champions League final where he only played 20 minutes and and you see him in the gym even though they won do you know what I mean Mm. like which yeah yeah, for sure I completely agree with you he's not an adequate replacement for Ronaldo and it's sad because at that point I kind of think his his career is doomed a little bit because he'll have so much expectation on his shoulders and I don't think he's going to live up to it but um, yeah it's definitely interesting to see whether or not Madrid's youngsters can perform well against, you know, it's really going to be like who decides to show up on the day. I mean, even like Ozan Kabak for Liverpool looks like he's trying to like starting to get into the swing of being a good mm. centre-back for Liverpool, but it's really anyone's guess as to how he performs week in, week out. So it's quite a fun one where despite the fact that these are two really well-established European teams, literally anything could happen. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's a very unguessable game, and it's sort of it's it's crazy to think that these two teams probably were, and and they both won Champions League very recently, but they probably were the two strongest teams in Europe like two three years ago, and now this is a, a, a sort of matchup where you're sort of going, well, which team is going to fuck up first? Is it going to be the strikers that miss sitters for Real Madrid, or is it going to be the defenders showing Benzema in for for Liverpool? I know what you mean, man, and despite the fact that I'm trying to get excited about it, I actually think it's going to be a really boring two two games. I think yeah. um, I really don't think it's going to live up to the hype at all. If I was going to miss a tie, it'd be this one. Yeah, no, I, I think that's right. I think that's actually true. Um, looking at the next team that are playing, an English team, uh, this is Borussia Dortmund who are taking on Manchester City, which is another one of maybe the most <laughs> unenviable ties, um, especially because of all the Champions League teams we're discussing today. Dortmund are the ones struggling the most in their domestic league. They're currently sat fifth in the Bundesliga, and it's entirely possible that unless they win this game in the entire competition, they won't be in next year's Champions League. Um, it's interesting because we've looked at a number of teams 
uh, in recent weeks in the podcast in the Premier League that have been sort of disproportionately affected by a lack of fans around in stadiums. And I think that everyone's been affected it to some degree. But I think some teams like your Liverpools or your Sheffield United's or your Crystal Palaces have been affected more than others. And I think Dortmund are definitely a team that have been affected massively by this. They're famous for the yellow wall across the world. And it's, it's this legendary sort of massive fan ensemble that boosts the Dortmund players and intimidates, you know, Dortmund enemies. I've been to the Signal Duna Park and it's an absolutely insane spectacle. So without that, that's a massive miss uh, a massive miss for them. And because of the COVID restrictions in Germany, as I mentioned earlier, because they're playing Man City, they won't be able to play at their home ground even. So that's just a huge, huge miss for them. Um, they also don't even have a full-time manager at the moment. They're currently interim managed by Lucien Favre's former assistant, Edin Terzic. Um, so I think this maybe paints the picture of a team that is on a little bit of shaky ground. But, and this is something I think we're going to be coming back to later when I ask you sort of a few questions at the end, their run in the Champions League is a little bit of a different story, largely due to Erling Haaland, who is the current top scorer in this year's competition. He's got 10 goals. The next best person has got six. Jaden Sancho has created the most chances of any player still in the competition, and his chances created per 90 is only bettered by Kevin De Bruyne. So, you know, again, this is kind of like the opposite of the Liverpool-Madrid tie. We just talked about how Liverpool versus Madrid is going to be a misfiring attack taking on a leaky defence. Here, we've got maybe the most potent attacking threat in Europe in Erling Haaland coming up against potentially Europe's best defence in Man City this season. True, and it's going to be interesting to see whether or not they, you know, yeah, who, who wins the clash. Um, but, I mean, recently we've seen a lot of frustration come out from Erling Haaland. And he, I think um, his side drew 2-2 and he scored both goals, I want to say, against um, Sevilla in, in the UCL a couple of weeks ago. And he, like, took his shirt off, just threw it at an opponent's player and just stormed down the tunnel. And it definitely, Dortmund at times, despite the fact that, you know, Jaden Sancho has been really creative this season and they ha- they do have a lot of good players in that squad. He has at times kind of almost felt like he's trying to like drag Dortmund along by the drawstrings, um, you know, scoring, scoring two goals in a 4-2 loss against Bayern Munich, um, for yeah. example, or, you know, scoring two in a 2-2 draw against FC Köln. Um, that was, that was what the, um, the shirt throwing was a couple of days ago. So yeah, it's I I think that two weeks ago I, w- I would have been a lot more confident that Dortmund could do it. Now I do think City will have enough in the locker, um, but I'm still really excited to see just how Erling Haaland you know takes it, how how well he plays against yeah. um, this this well, incredibly it- incredibly solid defensive structure, as you said. Well, it's a real it's a real acid test, isn't it? If he can score, you know, a hatful against this city defense, then he stands sure to like score against literally any team in the world. It the sure one thing is. I think Dortmund maybe have going for them, and this is maybe a little bit fanciful, but I, I genuinely do think there's something behind this. Narratives are so important in football, and I think the Champions League more than anywhere else has so much like narrative riding on it. Whether it's stuff like you know Kingsley Coman scoring the winner last year, and he's a Parisian against PSG. I remember when Iron Robin like lost the game against Chelsea and then scored the winner in the following season. The Champions League to me always has these like big narrative moments that are sort of like the, if I was trying to advertise the sport to some aliens, I'd be like, watch this competition. And I think Dortmund have just narrative potential in spades in this tie. Obviously, you've got Jaden Sancho, who is an ex-City player and left them to sort of find new fortunes. I think it would just make so much sense if he had an absolute blinder. Erling Haaland has been linked to City. Obviously, his dad played there as well. He's got a real connection with the club. I think it would just make so much sense to me narratively. And I can already hear like your Martin Tyler's and like the terrible tabloid newspapers in this UK being like, oh, because it just does happen. 
you cannot write it like that. Well, exactly. Yeah. I know what you mean. <laughs> I love that logic, though. You're like, okay, so it looks like they're not going to win, but let's talk plot points real quick. Um, <laughs> exactly. It, it sounds really weird, but in the Champions League, there genuinely is like an aspect of just narrative influence. I hear the you, whole f- Football is scripted. They've got to get those big points across. I hear what you're saying. Well, I think that really also just speaks to, you know, what decides games at the top level, which is mindset so much. Mm-hmm. And, you know, players wanting it that that tiny bit more. It's, it is such a game of, of like, fine margins um, that, you know, it just all it takes is, like, one or two players with a point to prove and, and a tie can completely turn on its head. So, yeah, again gonna preface all of these these things with like anything can happen um, yeah a little sprinkling of magic dust but again ta- tactically, I mean, um sorry go on no just say but, but tactically i mean you know aside from the the magical narrative tactically i'm really interested to see how this game works out one of the interactions that i'm most excited for of all football interactions this season is the interaction between how Cancelo and rafael guerrero because i think they might just have that spider-man meme moment where they're just like they meet <laughs> in the middle of the pitch and they're just like Ugh! They're actually going to swap shirts halfway through, and no one's going to notice. <laughs> no one's going to. They're just—they're like the same player, but on different sides. Um, it's funny, I think Dortmund are going to be quite keen to push the game wide because centrally, their combinations. You mentioned Jude Bellingham earlier, who's been playing centrally for them a lot. They've been playing some combination of Thomas Delaney, Mahmoud Dahoud, and Jude Bellingham. They're all solid players, but I just think if Dortmund try and play the game centrally, they're going to get absolutely dominated by Kevin De Bruyne and Gundogan and Bernardo Silva. Um, so I think they're going to push it wide. I think, again, like the PSG Bayern thing, maybe it's the case that Dortmund's best chances will come from individual star quality, namely Haaland and, and potentially Sancho. But I do also think that this is Pep Guardiola in a, in a Champions League quarterfinal. Anything can happen, and this is normally the stage of competition where he does something really insane and loses out. Like last season against Lyon, where they started with a 5-3-2, a formation City have never since used and never before used. (laughs) They've rolled out in a 5-3-2 and said, hey, Maxwell Corner, want to score loads of goals? Um, So I think, you know, in terms of teams, which is a better squad, Dortmund or that Lyon side, this Dortmund for me. I know what you mean. I can definitely see see something like... um... And it's an historic turn of events. Manchester City have decided to start the game with no centre-backs. And you're like... Well, exactly. This or like, is oh, just... Pep Guardiola has decided to bench a very informed Riyad Mahrez so that Zinchenko can play on the right wing. What a surprise they've lost. Yeah, bizarre. <laughs> you, know, you never know what the, uh, the Guardiola magic raffle will bring to the table. I, I do think, though, when you talk about like, PSG could nick it with their star talent. And I think, in my mind, like Dortmund are way more likely to win this tie with a couple of, of moments of class from Haaland and Sancho than PSGR to beat Bayern over two legs. Yeah, well, I, I think the thing is also, you know, Pep might have a bit of a rotation or tactical, you know, kerfuffle, but it does take place over two legs. So I could see there being a bit of a hiccup in the first leg and then City just going, nope, nope, not again, and just punishing them. Um, I think it is interesting to note that supposedly Sancho has got a little injury that may or may not keep him out of the first leg. I'm taking that with an extremely large pinch of salt because of the international break. A lot of players tend to get injured just for the international break when they've got big games after it. So I I, I saw that report and I was like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to leave you where you are for now. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but I think this will be an interesting game. I think it'll be a good chance for City to maybe throw off the yoke of 
quarterfinal failure that's been following them. But I also think that Dortmund will be looking at this as, uh, you know, we're a team that has been further in the Champions League in recent years than this side. We have star quality. We're better than the Leon side that knocked them out last season. We can do this if we just set out right. Definitely. Very definitely. Um, but um, let's talk about the final uh, European competition. Porto are the team that will take on Chelsea in the quarterfinals. And this has just been, I would say, the most interesting narrative build-up of any of the ties so far that we've seen, Uh just because it's been really weird what's been going on between the two clubs. So firstly, there was quite a funny little contrast between um, Chelsea beating Atletico over two legs, looking really solid, 3-0 on aggregate over the two matches. And Mm -hmm. at the end of the game, Thomas Tuchel came out and said, "Um, we're ready for anyone. We're ready. We feel like we can beat anyone right now. It was a real, you know, like Chelsea are turning a corner they're looking really strong. They're ready to, to compete in Europe again. And then not two days later, when Porto um, drew Chelsea, the the manager just came out and said, it just felt like such a, a funny, like, like, immediately after Chelsea say we could beat anyone. Porto were like, yeah, we're glad we didn't get by in our city. Chelsea are a good side, but they're not better than Juve. So if we're really happy for the draw, we'll just play our normal <laughs> game um, and beat them like we did Juve. So uh, hilarious. Um, and then weirdly as well, for, again, from like the Porto side of things, um, a, a Porto legend in Paolo Futre came out last week and said he was disgusted upon learning that Chelsea players celebrated getting the Portuguese side in, in the Champions League final draw, quarterfinal draw. So apparently, you know, Chelsea behind the scenes were really happy. And despite the fact that Porto's manager has been outwardly, aggressively disdainful of Chelsea, this Porto legend has come out and said, like, it's disgraceful that, that Chelsea were happy privately. Um, I so, think that's so funny that both team thinks the other one's like a scrub. They both think they've had an easy draw. I know. I know. Which is why it's like building up to a... I think it's really going to almost be like a grudge match. I mean... They've got a little bit of history as sides. Um, obviously, you know, they've got quite a few players in common over the years. But um, it's just, yeah, I think it could be really funny. And I think Porto, it feels like they're trying to build up this narrative of like, we will we will destroy Chelsea. And I don't know, I'm just, I'm just excited. I feel like there's going to be a bit of hostility on the pitch. Um, it's going to be not necessarily the most exciting game because Porto are not, necessarily very free scoring so you know they're definitely very much going to be trying to grind out a couple of one nil wins um Mm. but yeah i just i found it really interesting to see how it's been building up in the press I think it definitely is very interesting. I, I I can kind of get where Porto are coming from with Conseco's comments about like if we can you know beat Juventus, we can beat Chelsea. I think especially because Porto had a game plan across the two legs against Juventus that absolutely worked. They completely managed to get Ronaldo out of the game, and I think if you're you know if you can manage with your defenders to limit the effectiveness of Ronaldo, who's the all-time Champions League top scorer, you probably feel pretty you probably feel pretty confident about your you know chances of keeping out Timo Werner. Um, I think. 
you know, they they forced Juventus to play a wide game and all of their goals had to come from Federico Chiesa. And they had they did that because they're a really well-organised side. Their formation shifts as the game evolves. They start in the first day against Juventus as a 4-4-2 and shifted to a 5-3-2 after going up and eventually a 6-4-1 to close out the game. Um, I think they have a lot of experience. Pepe is one of their centre-backs. He's the oldest outfield player in the tournament this year, the second oldest of all after Buffon is 43. Um, but he looked really good in the previous time. He rolled back the ears and showed, you know, more experience than old age. Uh, Chancellor Mbemba, who's his partner, looked really, really good. Many Premier League fans will remember him as being, you know, part of a really unremarkable Steve McLaren Newcastle side. Um, but he too seems to have. Or they won't remember that. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Only only the most, like, (laughs) the Newcastle fans and us. We're the only ones who remember him. Uh, but he, he's he's looked really really good. He was fantastic in that leg, in that first leg um, against Juventus, and was really really good when they were sort of hanging on for dear life against him in the second leg as well. So this is another one of those games. I hope that the grudge match influences the style of football. I think that because of the way that Porto performed against Juventus, as well as the fact that Chelsea under Tuchel have really impressed defensively but maybe are still looking for that goal scoring brilliance uh, to come through I can see this being a really frustrating side for both teams especially because they both have rolled up thinking it's a really easy fixture when both teams realize they can't score they're going to be quite frustrated yeah I know what you mean it's it's Chelsea just a weird one at the moment because sometimes they look like a Man City level of free scoring creative like chance creation kind of style of football and then other times it's like we can't like they just feel like they can't, you know, get anything. So it's, um, yeah, it really is going to also just depend on which side we see on the day from them. But Porto are going to do their best to frustrate, and it's not going to be Team of Owners game. I don't think it's going to be Hakim ZX game. And um, yeah, time will tell. I think it's a very, very interesting uh, showdown by, by teams that in, in a lot of ways have similarities. Um and then, not least in their approach mentally to the game. Um, but I just want to wrap this up by throwing a couple of questions at you. Um, the first one, which you sort of alluded to, but I just want to hear what you think. Do you think that we have a chance of having a real dark horse winner in this too? Do you think the bracket sets it up for us? Because not only, as we've said, do we have like a real lopsided bracket with Bayern, PSG and City on it, but loads of the traditional you know, Champions League threatening sides have been knocked out. It's the first time since 2004-05 that we've had a Champions League quarterfinals without Messi and Ronaldo. Yeah, which is um, definitely surprising. And I think that you had two different questions in there. One, does the bracket set itself up for a dark horse? Absolutely, yes. I think we're going to get a dark horse. Any one of those four teams on the right-hand side is going to be a dark horse in the final. Mm-hmm. based on the seasons that they're having and the profiles right. that they have as a club. Whether or not we're going to see it, I do feel like Bayern Munich are just too dominant. I think anything can happen over 90 minutes. So I would say that the chances are more likely than normal, but I still just feel like the best teams are just too good at the moment. So you, you don't see it as, a, as a, a real possibility that Porto could run away with the Champions League again? <laughs> Do you know what? I actually would say yes. It's 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 a weird season. It's a weird year. Anything can happen. I think Porto could do it. Yeah, okay. Interesting. I'm glad, glad to hear that. My second question to you is, do you think that 
we've obviously just talked about all these teams and the seasons they're having. Do you think that it's important to delineate the difference between European and domestic form? Um, because obviously some teams have, you know, their best performances in the Champions League when their team is doing really well in the league. But for a lot of other teams, it's that's just not the case. For example, Real Madrid, who are the undisputed kings of the Champions League, having won it 13 times, have only won the double once. Yeah, it is surprising, isn't it? Um, just given how, how many times they've won in recent years. Mm. I think that... And only you, once with La Liga. Exactly, yeah. You're absolutely right. I think that it's just a complete mental shift from um, you know these big one-off games to domestic games. And it also champions different things. We talk about sides that do well in... Um, in the league and sides that do well in cup competitions and, and a lot of that is down to squad depth so a lot of the time a side that's playing really well in Europe is doing so because they're able to muster a really good starting lineup once every two weeks but they can't do it every four days um, domestically so yeah absolutely you have to delineate them maybe now so more than ever because we are seeing a couple more smaller injuries and I think form is also a little less permanent. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. I think that these 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 trophies that are going to be decided over 180-minute legs and 90-minute games is is definitely... You've got you've to separate domestic from European. Yeah. No, I, I think, we've, you know, there's definitely a lot of evidence for that, not least, you know, your teams like City, who are fantastic domestically and they're not really there Europe, in European competition, or like a Liverpool on the other end of the spectrum who you know, only won their first Premier League title last year, but were European powerhouses throughout the mid-noughties. Um, so I think it is an interesting phenomenon. Um, and I do think that despite the fact that we've talked about a lot of these teams as being weaker than we might normally expect, I also could potentially see like Liverpool and Real Madrid and teams like that just really dusting things off and showing why they used to be considered such big, big teams. Uh, well, I say used to, like literally last season, like world-class <laughs> threats. It's a shame Liverpool aren't <laughs> a big side anymore. <laughs> <laughs> oh god i'm gonna get hunted down for that one <laughs> no but sort of remind everyone sort of what they were like a couple of seasons ago yeah for sure i mean do you think um do you think that it's more likely this year that we'll get a dark horse winner I, I feel like this season we're going to have a real punishing final. I think Bayern Munich are going to probably be the side on the left hand of the bracket that are going to make it through could be wrong, could be PSG, but just logically that seems to make the most sense to me. And I think if Bayern Munich play like any one of those teams on the, on the side, I think it's going to be a real thrashing. Um, I, I would love, again, for the narrative, for like a Porto to come in and be the underdogs and take it. But I think any of those, even Real Madrid or Liverpool or Chelsea, I think if they meet Bayern in the Champions League final and Bayern Munich have like already got one eye on the trophy, they're, just, they're not going to just beat them. They're going to thrash them to try and just make it a moment. Could well. I mean, obviously, uh, uh, we'd be remiss if we didn't mention, I guess, 2012 final Chelsea versus Bayern, where Bayern were so dominant and Chelsea were just upstarts that had a threadbare squad with I mean, yeah. players injured, players um, suspended. They started Ryan Bertrand at left wing um, and still managed to win. So, you know, it's, hap- it's happened before. It can happen again. Anything can happen in this in this beautiful game we call football. Um, uh, with a lack of settling the score due to last week's blank game week giving us only four games to predict and that resulting in a draw and next week's international break giving us no games for this week, uh, let's wrap up with guessing game. Yeah, so this is... A, I'm struggling with this one. I've got a couple of ideas in mind. Um, 
but I don't think I'm going to get it. I think I'm probably going to going to miss it. Um, I've got a very, very, very big hint. If you can't get it in your first guess, that'll basically give it away. But I'll just read out the hint uh, to the uh, listeners again. Uh, this player has the third most official appearances of all time and the most official appearances for an outfield player. He was nicknamed the Bullet Man for the power with which he struck the ball. And he played with Jose Antonio Reyes, Clarence Sadoff, Javier Zanetti, and Ronaldinho. So, my question is... Can I have a question first? Uh, if actually, like. No, actually, Joe, I, there are two players that I've got in mind. One is Zlatan Ibrahimovic. Mm-hmm. And the other one is Ronald Koeman. Because I, think- I can't, I can't necessarily... Th- think of how he's played with with all of these players at all but just just someone who was such a mainstay in the Champions League for so long that he will have racked up a lot of um a lot of matches and someone who just had an absolute weapon of a right foot on him um so 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 would you like to make one of those your official first guess I think Zlatan's going to be my first guess uh, it is not Zlatan Ibrahimovic, I'm afraid. That's, I would say that's a more solid guess than Ronald Koeman, who I think is a little bit, like a decade too old to have played with most of these players. It's um, a bit rogue, isn't it? Yeah, it's just, it's just off. I, I just but, couldn't remember uh, when Ronald Koeman finished his career. I thought if it was around 2005, then... Yeah, um, maybe he could have overlapped. I think I think he's a bit bit too old for that. But um, do, do, would you like your hint? Because this one probably will give it away. Um. Okay, yeah, let's have a hint. This player is considered by many to be the greatest left-back of all time. Is it Roberto Carlos? It is indeed Roberto Carlos. (laughs) 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 This player is considered... His name is considered to rhyme with Roberto Barlos. Uh, yeah, no, of course, it's Roberto Carlos, who has the third most fished appearance of all time. Uh, he was nicknamed El Hombre Barra uh, in Spain for that, and he played with Reyes at Real Madrid, Clarence Sadoff also at Real Madrid, Javier Zanetti at Inter Milan, and Ronaldinho for Brazil. There you go. Well, I'll, I'll take the L on that one because of, again, you know, just the, the strength of the clue was uh, <laughs> <laughs> a little too too good to, to not get it right. Um, but... Uh... Yeah, I had not. I hadn't come across that as a um, a nickname, the Bullet Man. That's cool. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I just hit, had hit it so hard. I think his free kicks were clocked in at over a hundred and five miles per hour. I mean, it it was just unbelievable. It's funny because he is like post career considered to be one of the best free kick takers of all time, but really he actually had a terrible track record. Um, he like his conversion rate was was among the lowest in in top like considered players um but just just for the the few that he scored that were just absolutely unreal alone you've got to think of him as as one of the greats i mean that one against france obviously will will remain in, in the minds long and hard i think it's a bit like cristiano ronaldo because post united cristiano ronaldo's free kick record like his conversion rate is also it's really really bad, really bad. Yeah, yeah but the ones that do go in are so impressive that people are like this guy's amazing yeah, exactly. I think that's that's the point. Is like they they stick in your mind. You remember them. Like when you think of the best free kick goals of all time, your mind's not gonna not think of Ronaldo versus Porto in two. Sorry, against Portsmouth in two thousand eight. Your mind's mm. not gonna not think of you know Roberto Carlos internationally or you know it's yeah definitely. Um, Absolutely. Uh, so yeah, so that was getting over this week, uh, Rupert. I think that about does us for this week. Uh, great to talk to you as always. 
Camp, thank you very much. And uh, I hope that some of you got that at home. And thank you for listening. We'll catch you next time. Cheers, guys. Bye. Armchair Analyst was recorded remotely by Cameron McDonald and Rupert Meadows. The album artwork was provided by our good friend Amshel.